Morning. Morning. We have problems. Oh, Joy, there are no problems, only solutions. <laughs> I should warn you, this guy's a little rough around the edges. Say hello to our new guest commentator. Who's this delightful creature? I'm your producer. I like your woman on top. Oh. Welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we watch a rom-com and tell you why the protagonist made the wrong choice. I'm Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Sadie. And today we're going to talk about the worst movie we have yet watched for this podcast, The Ugly Truth. Take it away, (laughs) Samantha. (laughs) All right, the task has fallen to me to summarize The Ugly Truth. And the reason why I jumped on the grenade of summarizing this movie is because it's my fault that we had to watch it in the first place. I don't know how much of this has made it into the podcast episodes we've recorded thus far, maybe a few passing references, but essentially for the last six weeks, I have been campaigning and lobbying for Sadie and Jen to watch this movie with me. And they have been dragging their feet, going through various stages of grief, Uh, trying to (laughs) bargain with me, trying to uh, put other movies in the roster, the lineup ahead of this one. And finally, (laughs) this week, I got my wish. Did it make you happy, Samantha? (laughs) It it did. Um, All right. Here is my summary of The Ugly Truth. Abby Richter, whose name is apparently meant to evoke how anal she is, is a morning show producer in Sacramento, California, she is also portrayed by Katherine Heigl and therefore shall henceforth be known as Katherine Heigl. Despite <laughs> flagging ratings, Katherine Heigl is determined to save her show, but mostly she wants to find Mr. Right by using the scientific method, performing background checks and analyzing dating profiles until she meets the perfect guy. Enter Mike Chadway, the misogynist shock jock host of a cable access sex and dating show entitled (laughs) The Ugly Truth, who somehow manages to be both a Mike and a Chad. Uh, Mike Chadway is portrayed by Gerard Butler and therefore shall henceforth be known as Gerard Butler. Catherine Heigl and Gerard Butler have a run in early on in the movie when she calls into a show and he mocks her desire for an effete, cat-loving, sophisticated man before he simulates a blowjob on a marshmallow. <laughs> the very next morning, Catherine Heigl's boss announces that they've got a new segment for the morning show and a new host for it. And of course, it's Gerard Butler, who within the course of his first five minutes in his new workplace, commits a staggering and almost mathematically impossible number of fireable offenses, uh, (laughs) chiefly just sexually harassing rampantly, indiscriminately anyone who comes within a three foot radius of him. Uh, Because the movie needs to at least pretend to have a plot, Gerard Butler and Catherine Heigl set up a bet. If he can't help her bed the dreamy doctor next door, Colin, who's our other guy, he'll quit the show. As various hijinks, which we'll discuss, ensue, Catherine Heigl gets Colin on the hook, and Gerard Butler's segment becomes wildly successful to the point that he gets invited to go to LA and appear on the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson (laughs) as a sort of audition for a better morning show. That night, Catherine Heigl and Gerard Butler kiss in an elevator after a dancing scene sequence in which they frankly exhibited the same amount of chemistry as two mannequins could. (laughs) Then Catherine breaks up with Colin. Gerard quits anyway, just to really stick it to her, I guess. But then they romantically reunite inside of a hot air balloon that was filmed in front of one of the most 
egregious green screens in cinematic history. And that's the ugly truth. Oh, and then at the very end, she tells him that he'll never know if she's faking her orgasms or not. Oh, (laughs) yes. What a (laughs) playful ending. (laughs) Just Schrodinger's orgasm to to end us. It really bodes well for their happily ever after. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one thing I didn't really fully capture in the summary is the extent to which Gerard Butler's relationship advice is toxic, like, let men be men, we are all just simple and want BJ's and fucking like nonsense. It's honestly like built on a very like, low expectation for men. And yet it's being championed as like pro masculine advice. Um, the first time that we meet Mike, he talks about how much he wants blowjobs on air, and then he takes a marshmallow that's stuck on a poker and sticks it in his mouth. And we were just supposed to know what that meant. <laughs> because you know, the number one phallic shaped food is marshmallows. You know, not popsicles or hot dogs. No, it's little tiny square marshmallows. (laughs) God, this movie. (laughs) He is eating a lot in this movie. One of the things we kept count of, or I I was keeping count of in our group chat as we watched it together, was the number of times Gerard Butler eats on screen, which I think is meant to underscore how carnal and libidinal he is, that he's just like... (laughs) I don't know, always got like a T-bone steak in his hand, just like, you know, occasionally sinking a bite into that juicy steak every so often during like a completely normal conversation. Uh, They do this sometimes with male characters in movies to be like, look how Matthew McConaughey is especially an egregious offender in this category of like eating on screen a lot to show how like casual and masculine they are. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I Okay. So I just need to address... The main point of of what we're going to be saying, which is that this movie fucking sucks. It sucks so bad. It is by (laughs) far the worst movie we've ever seen on this podcast. We are, we have surpassed Sweet Home Alabama. We have surpassed Kate and Leopold. It's that we've left them in the dust. This is by far the worst. We have surpassed the worst moments of leap year. Easily. We okay, well, well, maybe territory. don't go there, Jen. <laughs> maybe we're not going to bash Leap Year this time around. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> this movie makes Leap Year look like Citizen Kane. This- <laughs> I think I warned Sadie that this movie would be the equivalent, the rom-com equivalent of watching a Saw sequel. Like the kind of movie you watch just to see if you can get to the other side of it. And and we did, but I feel like we're all kind of traumatized by it. I'm still processing. (laughs) What makes it so terrible? Is it just the kind of toxicity of the underlying message that, men are primitive ape creatures who, and that women are just, you know, checklist obsessed anal freaks. Like, is that it? Or is it also just like a failure as a movie? Like, to me, and I think that I speak for all of us, because we did watch this together. None of the jokes landed 
at all. There are some movies that I'll admit they're like misogynistic and terrible or whatever. But if if it's like on and I like watch it, I might laugh a couple times at like one or two jokes. But with this movie, nothing, absolutely nothing. And both of the, which we'll talk about in a little bit, both of the guys, the potential suitors are well, one is markedly worse, but the other one's not great either. So at the end, you're just like disappointed and just kind of exhausted. Yeah, I think you're, we've definitely watched movies for this podcast. Like even Just Friends had a kind of like, you know, regressive message to it. And yet the movie still managed to have amusing moments, mostly thanks to Anna Ferris. And this movie, I feel like, I could compartmentalize all of the toxic ideology if there was something else to hang on to. And maybe some of my problem with it is that neither Katherine Heigl or Gerard Butler are very captivating or interesting to watch. Yes. <laughs> Speak on it, Jen. Well, everything that you guys have said so far, the toxicity, the, the poor acting, the poor staging, it was just really rough. And I feel like several of these movies that we've watched already for this podcast, the writing has been shoddy, but the charisma of the actors has been enough to carry it, to give a sense of a connection between the two, like falling in love uh, with Christina Milian and some guy who's Australian, but was pretending to be from New Zealand. It, you know, I wanted to see them kiss. Katherine Heigl and Gerard Butler I did not want to see Kiss, and I never want to see them pretend to kiss again after watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to also just make a point before we get too far into discussing this here. This is absolutely superficial, but the styling in this movie, <laughs> not even so much in terms of costumes, but just everything was just really rough. I sent Samantha and Sadie approximately 57 texts screaming about the super yellow, untoned bleach shade of Katherine Heigl's hair in this movie that was incredibly unflattering. Gerard Butler, and this is not a body shaming comment, uh, his, his 300 abs that he had achieved, what, like three or four years before this movie was filmed? That would be a ridiculous routine to keep up, and half of that was makeup and retouching anyway. But... He just looked rough. Like, I think that Gerard Butler must have spent the entire filming of this movie going out and drinking liquor and attempting to bone 23-year-olds all night. And then he just staggered into set the next morning because he looks like he smells throughout this movie. Like, neither of these people have any sort of romantic charisma or attractiveness in any way that I want to see them get together. Yeah, they have anti-chemistry. And the one scene that's <laughs> meant to establish that they have chemistry, which is the dancing sequence. And the, well, I, I don't know what kind of nightclub that is or what kind of dance they were doing because the dance is not identifiable. It consists of Gerard Butler standing in place while Katherine Heigl twirls around him, smiling a comically huge smile, despite seconds earlier being like, no, no, I don't want to dance. And then suddenly, voila, she's, you know, a ballroom expert. They had to go real close in on all those shots to, I mean, I guess to try to disguise the dancing, but also to attempt to sell us on the notion that some chemistry was happening between those two. Whereas if we could have actually seen any of the other dancers in the frame, we would have realized that those people wanted to be dancing together and Katherine Heigl and Gerard Butler hate each other. 
And right after this scene, they go into the elevator and then they have this weird like five minute will they or won't they moment and then they kiss. But when they're in the elevator, Samantha commented on how rough Gerard Butler's skin looked and it looked so bad. I don't know why. Yeah, like going back to what Jin said, the, the way that they made him look, he looked terrible. Like, if I saw him on the street, I would not think that he was attractive at all, no. honestly. If I saw this man on the street, I if, if I didn't just ignore and circle wide around, I might cross the entire street to avoid him. Yeah. If I heard him speaking out loud or saying any of the dialogue that he said in this movie, I would move at least 500 yards down the beach to find another patch where I wouldn't have to hear him. I would leave the park if this man was there when I arrived. Just not a not a viable romantic lead. Yeah, a lot of rom-coms do the things where the leads hate each other, and yet we're supposed to uh, imagine some kind of chemistry from that through body language. And Katherine Heigl is not a, dr- a good actress. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. And Gerard Butler is clearly uh, kind of going through it at this point. And so neither of them seem to... <laughs> capable of mustering something approximating a genuine connection. It would work better as a movie about coworkers who hated each other uh, than it is about coworkers who hate each other and then suddenly are mysteriously wanting to bone at the end of it. Yes. What makes me so upset about The Ugly Truth, probably more than anything else, is that the actual like enemies to lovers like base plot of the ugly truth they could have done such a good job with it like the concept of her being a producer and then she has this previous backstory with this guy and then oh surprise he's like the new talent that you know she's gonna have to manage it that alone they could have built something really fun with that but then they did every single thing wrong in every aspect and created the worst movie ever made. Yeah, one of the core pieces of that dynamic is that there needs to be some kind of push and pull, right? Like they each need to have flaws. One of them needs to be good at at one thing and the other one at another thing. And they kind of come to a respect for each other at the same time as their affection for each other bubbles up. And in this movie, uh, Mike Chadway is just good at everything he does and is amazing at everything he does. And Catherine Heigl's character is just like, oh, look how horrible and delusional and control freaky she is. Like, we pointed this out in our group chat at one specific moment where she needs Gerard Butler's help to date Colin. And so therefore, there should be a moment later in the movie where Gerard Butler needs her help to do something that he wants to do. And he's nervous about his appearance on Craig Ferguson. And that would be the perfect moment to be like, oh, I'm going to be in your earpiece. Me, Catherine Heigl, will be in your earpiece coaching you through the appearance. Something to give the characters some more even footing. And instead, I feel like the movie is really strongly aligned with Mike Chadway's worldview, ideology, um, and just like totally drinking his Kool-Aid. No, it absolutely was. I suppose you could argue that there was a tiny bit of character development on Catherine Heigl's part in that She learned that she needs to 
dress differently and lie a bunch and present an entirely fake personality for herself in order to capture a man's attention and affection. Then once she has done that, she decides it's not worth it because Colin, who I guess we'll eventually get to our other guy here in, in a bit, he he says honestly to her, thinking that she's presenting herself authentically, that he enjoys that she is a, you know, a cool girl from Gone Girl, that she has no needs and is go with the flow. And Katherine Heigl gets upset about this because she wants to be herself. But then she goes and gets with Gerard Butler, who plays a character who is amply and continually rewarded for jello wrestling at his workplace and who has no character development or alteration throughout the movie whatsoever and just continues to be a shitbag. And we still don't know if he is actually capable of giving a person, another person an orgasm at the end of the movie. And he is rewarded with the relationship and it's just tragic. And I'll go ahead and break the news now at this point that usually, y'all, I don't want to bust on the professionals who are involved in making these, these pieces of work for us to see because everybody has a bad day, a bad few months or a year, a project, you know, everybody's got some stinkers in their resume. I'm not interested in trying to call people out for their poorest work. However, we looked up the writers of this movie and found out the horrifying news that two of them are writing partners who collaborated on the American classics, 10 Things I Hate About You, The House Bunny, Ella Enchanted, Legally Blonde, She's the Man. <sighs> yeah. And then they wrote The Ugly Truth. <laughs> it's really disappointing. I mean, in fairness, it looks like they worked with a story idea from another screenwriter and also they've written, you know, more amazing and classic movies together than any of us will ever write. So maybe they just had a bad day. <laughs> but maybe this was the project in into which they poured all of their worst instincts and just kind of like purged every bad idea that they ever had so that their other projects could be classics. That's going to be my generous yes. take on it. Maybe in the deal with the devil that they had to make to write the classics, 10 Things I Hate About You and Legally Blonde, their bad movie had to be so bad that like it would... Anyway, my other, my other theory about this uh, is that there is one other writer credited at the top of this, who does not have a Wikipedia page of her own. And as Samantha suggested when we first uncovered the ugly truth about the writing of this movie the other night, maybe this name is a pseudonym for some Mike Chadway-esque character who swept in and led our led our girls astray in the writing of this movie. This is just, it's so bad. I can't wrap my, my head around it. <laughs> It's a pseudonym for Jimmy Kimmel. I don't want them to take responsibility. <laughs> I like that Jen has gone full. You're an ugly truther. Oh my God. Let's start this conspiracy that the third writer is doesn't exist and was in fact, yeah, a Gerard Butler-esque figure that was shoehorned in. They were... 
I like to picture it as uh, Karen McCullough Lutz and Kirsten Smith. They were just minding their own business, writing a perfectly charming, if a little mindless, Catherine Heigl rom-com when the studio walked in and they were like, this isn't what men want to see. Men want to see cocks. They want to see marshmallow (laughs) blowjobs. Introducing your new writer, uh, Mark... (laughs) Uh, Mark Aronson and then instrals Mark and is like, what's up ladies? We're going to, we're going to, we're going to fuck this movie up. We're going to make this movie our bitch. And that's how the ugly truth became the ugly truth. I am. I am an ugly truther. This movie used the phrase bean flicking unironically. And I just can't lay that at the feet of the women who wrote 10 things I hate about you. Yeah. Gerard Butler said uh, bean flicking vag and boobies. And I, I needed to bleach my brain after I heard those words come out of his mouth. That one point where he's leaving and I think she's with Colin and he just hisses wet crotch at her and then leaves the room. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like honestly worried about his character, not just Gerard Butler, the person circa 2009, but this character who seems like we can't even get a five minute scene where he doesn't say something like wet crotch, where he's not being like, uh, you know, ostentatiously chauvinistic. Like we can't even get five minutes of him just being a normal fucking person. Even when he meets his sister, he has to smack his sister on the ass. Like, yeah, just give me five minutes of Mike Chadway, like having a normal conversation with a friend character about his day or his new job or something to ground him, tether him to some sort of reality. Well, they did a little uh, Kate and Leopold-esque introducing a random child to show him interact with the kid and and make him look more sympathetic that way. I guess this isn't a random child since it's supposed to be his nephew. For an instant, I was really terrified that they were going to make this man a dad. And I, I don't know how I would have handled that. But his the, the the interactions with the nephew that were supposed to be heartwarming and show that he's a decent guy showed him telling his well, probably like eight, nine-year-old nephew not to listen to what he says on the show, but conditionally. Like, don't say that to the other 10-year-olds in your class. Wait and say it to hot 25-year-old girls and destroy their self-esteem and take advantage of them sexually when you're older. Yeah, you're <laughs> never too early to learn how to nag, you know? Like... <laughs> God, I it's disappointing. And I think the movie go the movie fleshes out his character more. And this is an indictment of the rom-com genre more generally. But as Sadie and I were discussing in the group chat, like rom-coms often go out of their way to be like, the guy is an asshole because he got hurt. Like, oh, he's a total jerk, but it's okay because when he was 18, his high school girlfriend dumped him. And who can recover from that kind of trauma, right? And yet with Catherine Heigl's character and with the kind of anal stereotype of like female rom-com protagonists, there's never any sort of curiosity about 
how did this character become that way? What sort of experiences have they had that have given them so much anxiety about sex and dating and led them to try to take control over a process in which they feel very kind of passive and yeah there's no origin story for how Catherine Heigl became a checklist maker but Um, there's plenty of origin story for (laughs) yeah yet another check in leap years column (laughs) because they did give Amy (laughs) Adams a backstory as to why she was a control freak in that movie And I'd just like to remind you of that. (laughs) My new conspiracy theory is that despite Sadie's protests over watching The Ugly Truth, she was secretly manipulating us toward this outcome so that we would appreciate (laughs) (laughs) Leap Year. And Sadie is actually the puppet master in all of this, not me. It's her fault that we watched this movie. I was the third screenwriter because I foresaw all of this happening. At the the tender age of 12, I guess that explains some things. It's a long game. That's that's impressive stuff. Okay, um should we at least once um mention the other guy in question? Yeah. Colin, doctor, flosses. Yes. Okay. My number one point in his column is he flosses point. his teeth. He is clearly taking better care of himself than either Mike Chadway or Gerard Butler circa two thousand nine. Yes. Does he have a T-bone in his hand? No, he is flossing. <laughs> in my in my opinion, in general, Gerard Butler is more attractive than Eric Winter, the guy who plays Colin. Because Eric Winter is so like g- like blandly attractive. Like he's just when you think of the word hot guy, he pops into your head. You know, just a generic bland white dude, you know, You've seen him a thousand times and you probably don't even remember. Um, But in this movie, he is leagues (laughs) ahead of Gerard Butler. (laughs) Um, Because Mike Chadway, because, you know, obviously like moisturizing, taking a shower, doing anything that would be way too gay. Because, of course, this movie is homophobic and they reiterate that a couple times. Um, And Collins like not i mean he flosses he looks clean he looks like he bathes so i think the biggest point to him is just that he's better looking he's too (laughs) symmetrical if you needed a comedy where they had like created a sex robot that was attractive to a character like Catherine heigl you would cast him and i guess that is ostensibly kind of the role that he's supposed to play he's supposed to be her dream man he's he's well groomed he's clean he has a respectable job and yet this is supposed to ultimately demonize him. And instead it made us by the point where they finally had an opportunity to have sex, just like ultimately cheering for Catherine Heigl to, to bed him in this hotel room, because why not? And you know, why didn't she? I mean, girlfriend, what you're going to come through with the authenticity here at this moment when you're finally gonna get laid which is like your stated goal throughout all of this 
horrible process of having Gerard Butler talk about your quote boobies and vag and dress you and tell you to lie and and not rescue you while you're in a really strange dinner scene and a child is unknowingly controlling your vibrating panties. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> let's let's take a step back. Forget Colin. We need to talk about the ostensible when Harry met Sally homage in this movie, which is her having an orgasm in a restaurant, except it's supposed to be a real orgasm and it's because she's wearing a remote controlled vibrator during a work dinner that her boyfriend is also at because she couldn't just say, sorry, something came up. I have to go to a work dinner. (laughs) Well, it was established that at that point, she had not yet slept with our two symmetrical man who is very beautiful, but it is a bit difficult to conceptualize him as a true human being because he looks kind of like a Ken doll. But she put on vibrating underwear with a gigantic controller. Man, do you guys remember the motion controllers for the Xbox 360? Like, that's what that thing looked like. It was huge. And like, like a PlayStation Move controller. There should have been a there should have been a product placement tie-in in this movie for this scene. And of course, a child picks up this controller somehow. A, a little boy just about I don't did we watched a, something that really was borderline somehow like sexually traumatic for both parties involved and even though Gerard Butler is aware of this happening the entire time he does nothing to assist or help out our girl who also apparently has such a hair trigger clit that she can't help but get off from some vibrating panties while she's at a dinner with her boss and her new boyfriend in a crowded restaurant. In our many (laughs) moments in our group chat of mind melding, this was perhaps the most powerful in which we collectively (laughs) condemned the idea that sheer vibration alone is like somehow enough to get you off, even in the most morbid and and anxiety inducing social situation of your life that somehow like lightly shaking panties would be like enough to (laughs) induce like a shuddering (laughs) orgasm in public Uh, no absolutely not if i'm like having sex and i think about my taxes like i'm done you know (laughs) let alone like put me in a public place (laughs) just looking at the face of your boss over the appetizers and uh, no the whole scenario was completely outlandish Right. Like I I get that rom-coms in general, it's a little bit of a suspension of disbelief. Like a lot of stuff that happens in rom-coms would not happen in real life. But this scenario in particular just bothered me so much because there's no, like, first of all, the little kid, the remote that he's holding, it's not doing anything. So what child is just going to sit there and flick the button up and down for like (laughs) 10 straight minutes when his, food, when, when his food is cooling right in front of him. So there's that level of disbelief. And then the other side is, I think all of us, every sane person watching this podcast would just immediately excuse themselves, go to the bathroom, take the underwear off, problem solved. End of, end of yeah. dilemma. <laughs> yeah. And yet she just Why sits there. Why did she even put the remote 
in her bag yeah. in the first place. I truly don't understand <laughs> anything about anything about the scenario. My mind is boggled. This movie is a nightmare. <laughs> this movie is like some weird, like angrily horny nightmare in which people don't have feelings or thoughts beyond just like boobs and cocks. Like, I don't like it. I want it to go away. <laughs> Dare I say, I feel like if if the ugly truth did not spawn just a wave of sexual harassment across the United States, I'll eat my hat. I will eat my hat. It does make workplace sexual harassment just like a playful hijink. And a lot of rom-coms do that in a lighter way than this. And this feels like the apotheosis of that that genre. Just like, this is the height of being charming. Maybe I should grab my coworker's ass. She'll love it. What does he say within like 30 seconds of being there? I like a woman on top. Uh, he says that. I actually scrolled back to your note a minute ago. While he is walking in the room, I think he's cut off mid-sentence from saying something outside. And his first words to a room full of his new boss and coworkers are... Crack whores. Oh, yes. Charming. (laughs) And then he says something about having sex with a German shepherd. (laughs) (laughs) There is no subtext to this movie at all. That's it. It was all said. It was all said right out there. And German shepherds did not deserve to be dragged into it. I think that's the perfect way to put it. No (laughs) subtext. Like, right down to she lives in this very, like, feminized, like, apartment complex with literally, like, a pink fountain. Like, the water is lit up in, in rose colors. And she has a cat and Gerard Butler has a German shepherd. This is some, like, men are from Mars, women are from Venus bullshit going on in this movie and it's not <laughs> subtle at all scrolling back through our uh our text transcripts we watched this all together for the first time using the netflix party app and my internet kept cutting out and the transcript just keeps saying that i left and honestly i i maintain that energy um i was not doing it on purpose guys but i can't say <laughs> that i complain i'm gonna complain about the breaks that i got <laughs> It felt like, honestly, I'm going to make a horror movie comparison, like watching a really intense, gory horror movie where every 15 minutes or so, you're just like, hang on, I need a second. Like, I need to catch my breath before this guy, like, saws his own leg off. Like, I need I need a moment to emotionally recover before we can get back into this. And my favorite Jen quote from our group chat was right before we began. <laughs> she said, press the cursed button, begin this torture. Was I wrong? That's an accurate <laughs> word for what ensued. Uh, Did this kill rom-coms? Do we think that this was... Oh. Because this was 2009. This was kind of like... Well, it must not have because Leap Year came out in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> True. So they were still trying. Samantha. <laughs> I, I am so glad that you asked that because I do believe that <laughs> Catherine Heigl... <laughs> herself kind of ruined rom-coms a little bit she she was in so many around this time around what i would say is like the last few years of like the rom-com era um yeah like post kate hudson 
She was yes. the face of rom-coms. Yes. And she brought a similar energy that Meg Ryan brought. I think I mentioned this in our podcast or not in our, po- in our group chat. Um, but Meg Ryan in the 80s and 90s had the same kind of like anal retentive, a little fussy, like in When Harry Met Sally. She's kind of a very much Katherine Heigl-esque character. And sometimes it works for Katherine Heigl, like in 27 Dresses, which is a good rom-com in my opinion. Um, But in almost every other rom-com that she's in, it does not work. And I think that these last few like years of Katherine Heigl movies or rom-coms represent the worst of the worst. And I think that people just kind of got tired of it. Like they were a little bit like, I don't want to watch this anymore. I don't want to watch Katherine Heigl just be a bad actress constantly yeah i meg ryan she ain't right yeah meg ryan can play like fussy particular characters but still bring a warmth and a humanity to the proceedings and katherine heigl gosh i don't want to dump on her but i kind of do because i just don't think she's a terrific actress i've never really liked or believed her in most of her film projects, not all, but like most of them, I feel like I can see the effort and it just, I don't know. There's, there's, there's scenes in this movie where a Meg Ryan could make something out of them. And Katherine Heigl just kind of falls flat for me. She's very cold and a little, she plays a little aggressive and she doesn't bring any of like what you said, that like warmth, that rom-com quirkiness. She just doesn't have it. Yeah. yeah. And it's super strange because, I mean, I remember seeing her in uh, Knocked Up as well. And I, I saw that once in theaters. And at the time I remember left with a favorable impression of it. Maybe because Seth Rogen could have chemistry with anyone. But Mm -hmm. I remember being baffled, again, because I haven't watched a lot of her movies, but I have been keeping up pretty exhaustively with celebrity gossip since about the year 2000, 2001. And... 20 years going on strong. (laughs) Catherine Heigl has such a bad reputation in the business that it really, I wondered about that this year, if she had crossed somebody or if she just truly is that unpleasant. Because on the surface of it, this woman should be a babe. I mean, she has all the components to be incredibly attractive, yet somehow the effect she gives off, you you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be drawn into her orbit. Apparently, and this was my post ugly truth reading, uh, Seth Rogen and Katherine Heigl have had a kind of longstanding feud over (laughs) Knocked Up in which Seth Rogen kind of took relish at the chance to invoke the fact that she went on to star in the ugly truth. So I think <laughs> the backstory here is Oh yes. In, yeah, in two thousand eight Catherine Heigl told Vanity on. Fair. Yeah, she yep. said it was a little sexist, um, knocked up. And Seth Rogan <laughs> said <laughs> that the ugly truth quote looks like it really puts women on a pedestal in a beautiful way. Sar- sarcastically, wow. of course. <laughs> and I think specifically pointed out the scene in which she like 
is supposed to be sexily eating a hot dog at a minor league baseball stadium. Definitely am in Seth Rogen's corner on this one. And that pains me because you know that I always like to blindly support a woman when I haven't heard, you know, the details about any gossip situation yet. But I think it can both be true that Knocked Up is a little sexist and Seth Rogen should be able to take the criticism and that Katherine Heigl made terrible career choices. Like, I feel like this is the decade when she should have not been doing the rom-com Easy Money and really kind of like cutting her teeth on some meteor roles. Instead, she did 27 Dresses and Maid of Honor and Ugly Truth and got paychecks for it, but came out the other side with not really a lot to do career-wise. I, I now in this moment, you reminded me, I want to bring up um, Rachel McAdams, which sounds <laughs> completely off um, off topic, but I feel like Rachel McAdams did what Katherine Heigl should have done, which is Rachel McAdams switched from like those bad rom like she was in that weird rom com with Channing Tatum where she lost her memory, um, and it was just a really oh, weird. No. <laughs> um yeah i don't know if and no one saw that movie but me yeah. i'm sure oh and she was um, in that weird that adaptation of the time traveler's wife that didn't do very well even though Eric yes. Bana is a hottie yes and uh, the notebook which we won't speak of um and she was also in about time <laughs> with domo gleason which is a good movie oh, i feel yeah. like both her and katherine heigl have one like really good rom-com for Katherine Heigl, it is, again, 27 Dresses. But then Rachel McAdams pivoted to more, like, serious roles. Like, she was in Disobedience. She was in Spotlight. And Rachel McAdams was good in both of those movies. Like, absolutely amazing. Because she's better with a more serious role. Because she's a more um, believable actress when she's in those, like, intense roles. And I think that if Katherine Heigl had tried her hand at some of those really intense, darker, or like more ruminating movies, she might have had success. She might have found her sweet spot, but we'll never know. I I love to hate Katherine Heigl, and yet I hate that I love to hate Katherine Heigl, if that makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm kind of coming at it from a little bit of the opposite end, because I remember, again, I, and I might have felt very differently if I had been watching these movies that were coming out at the time. But I remember celebrity gossip-wise supporting her in, you know, her being written off of her her show that launched her to fame with Grey's Anatomy. And I, uh, I'm i not brushed up on the details of what happened with that now. And then I wanted to support her when she called out, knocked up for being sexist and whatnot. But then again, as we pointed out, she went on to do this role. And maybe that was Katherine Heigl's problem in this movie. It's like the equivalent of when you're... <sighs> You're just working like a minimum wage job and you can't find the motivation to do a good job within yourself for what you're being compensated. Maybe Katherine Heigl just somehow signed the line for this and was locked in and then this is what we got. And actually, I got that energy very strongly off of everyone in this movie. They were all just collecting a paycheck. It it didn't (laughs) seem like... 
sometimes you see a movie with mediocre script or bad direction, and you can tell that the actors are trying to make something better out of it. And I often really enjoy watching those movies because they feel like really interesting metrics for the talent of actors. Like you can tell that they're really pushing the material to its limit. And in this one, everyone just seems to have like, they all have this doomed look in their eyes. Like they've accepted this as their fate. Like, <laughs> yes, doomed this is, is what the they're word. doing. <laughs> There's a bleakness to the whole affair. If I were in this movie, no matter what else I had done on my deathbed, I think I would feel a weird twinge of shame and then try to <laughs> cover it up by thinking more pleasant thoughts as I passed into the great unknown. And this is my mandatory death reference on this podcast. Samantha's musings on mortality, the the sidebar to you should see the other guy. <laughs> well, with Colin, sh- shall we try to return to Colin? Yes. Have we okay. strayed too far? We have on our list, Colin flosses. Colin is hot. Colin has a real career that does not involve sucking marshmallows off of pokers. Yeah, I will repeat my assertion that people in media should not be with other people in media, especially misogynist shock jock cable access hosts. But I think Katherine Heigl would do better to just be with someone in the medical world who's not like, whose life is not dependent on ratings and demographics and whatever. Yeah. I really thought there was going to be some narrative turnaround at the beginning of this that Gerard Butler was just a cynic who was doing this for the ratings and the views and then would be swayed by true love, but that didn't happen at all. So back to Colin. I I think that Colin, we should give him a point because at the end, I'm extrapolating a little bit, but there's that scene where they're in the hotel room, as I think Jen mentioned, um, he says that she's like a cool girl and that's what he likes about her, whatever, whatever. And then she kind of has a little bit of a, she gets mad at him and rips out her hair extensions <laughs> <laughs> and um and reveals herself in the movie <laughs> and reveals herself as a as a bob wearer um the whore <laughs> and then that's the end of colin and i i like to give colin a little bit more credit that maybe if she explained where she was coming from and she explained like hey the things that you did I pretended that they weren't annoying, but they were. Who's to say that he wouldn't have been like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I, you know, we can like try to figure this out. Like, we can still get to know each other all over again. But this time with no like false pretenses. I think that Colin is able to do that. I wanted that scene so badly too. She hasn't given him a chance to get to know her because she's been pretending to be someone else. Yeah, they are still in the very, very early new stages of dating in a relationship where everybody in that first couple of weeks is going to be trying to present an idealized sort of version of themselves anyway to a prospective partner. You know, that's just natural. And I think that he was trying to tell her what she wanted to hear was, you know, complimenting her easygoingness and saying that, you know, he thought things had gone smoothly so far. I think that he was being honest and his great crime was that he did not have a lens of truth to be able to see through the sham that she had perpetuated 
to attract him and somehow fallen in love with the anal retentive woman she is inside within that span of like two weeks or whatever. Everyone is pretending this early. He, <laughs> yeah. he should be like, I'm not really a doctor. <laughs> you think a doctor has this much time to spend on these abs in the gym? but he flew all the way across the country to surprise her you have this golden delicious opportunity to finally um you know have sex with this doctor and you're just gonna leave it on and she was literally salivating over his body when she sees him through the window when he is first introduced as a character he had to carry the whole male shirtlessness for this movie on his back oh that's right we'd we'd never do see gerard butler shirtless right even though all the women around him are expected to be in various states of undress and or jello for for the entire movie (laughs) yes gerard butler is is never objectified in this movie he exists to objectify he himself is not objectified (laughs) which in any successful sexual relationship there's a bit of give and take with that am i right Uh, yeah and yet another moment where it feels like the movie is almost condemning her for being into a really hot built doctor like as though that's somehow shallow of her there's some line that gerard butler has at the end where it's like given the choice between a Uh, you know, someone like me and a doctor, a woman's always going to choose a doctor. And it's like, okay, wow, there's some like rage going on here that we didn't fully explore in this movie. And just to just to remind everyone watching that in the first like five minutes of meeting Gerard Butler's character, he says, ladies, do you want to know how to get a man? It's called a stair stepper. Use one. So, um, hey, Gerard, (laughs) hey, Mike Chadway, (laughs) maybe quit bitching and get on your Stairmaster. Step it up, baby. Yeah, if you're so pressed about it. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, my God. Just the hostile work environment portrayed in this movie was absolutely wild. Like, they just let this man run amok, berating the women on set, <laughs> calling the men weak cowards, forcing co-hosts to kiss on on air, cursing, showing monkeys just fucking on screen. It, it was madness. It was a madhouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was a morning show, by the way. <laughs> It reminds me of the John Mulaney bit about Trump, where he said he compares Trump to being a horse in a hospital, <laughs> yeah. uh, like that kind of chaotic energy. And and that's what it feels like to let Mike Chadway run loose in the halls of this morning show. Just like he's a bonobo monkey in the, yeah. in, the in the broadcasting office, literally. <laughs> And I, I think if I could zoom out and look at the broad sociological implications of this film, I feel like this is how Trump happened. Because <laughs> yeah. in this movie, uh, Mike Chadway does this segment and he's terrible and he's grotesque and he's chauvinistic. And the next day, the boss is like, look at the ratings for that segment. They're up. And half of it half of those ratings are people who love him and half of those ratings are people who are hate watching him. And yet that leads them to double down and air even more Mike Chadway. And this exact same trajectory happened with Trump rallies. This is a movie 
about how Donald Trump became president. Like, damn, y'all. Like, when is our... We we must move away from this type of media where eyeballs or clicks equals advertising equals money, and that is what drives our our narrative as a society. Yeah. We're... <laughs> Were these like outlandish, wild, aggressive men get these platforms because of that reason? Because they're outlandish, they're loud, they're aggressive. And whether or not you like agree with their ideas, you still watch or tune in or whatever because it's just wild. And well, I'm not sure why this movie, I don't know, y'all. It the media, it, it was bleak. It was a bleak time to be a young adult in the mid. 2000s. And I would say that I started learning more about feminism in late 2007 when the website Jezebel was founded than I had through any of my liberal arts education up to that point. And (laughs) so this feels very strange to me having come out in 2009, where I had evolved somewhat in my views as a human being by the time this aired. It feels much more 2002 to me. What was going on in the 2000s? That's the question I've got. seven weeks into this podcast. This movie came out, let's see, because Obama was first elected in 2008, right? Yeah. So this seems like a maybe even a backlash, you know, <laughs> like a, a someone was trying to course correct and went completely overboard here uh, on the idea of women being fully realized human people. But here's the thing. At the time, this movie was still condemned as being a misogynist movie. Yeah. So, and yet we know from past rom-coms we've watched for this podcast that other kinds of stuff would fly in the 2000s that today we watch and are horrified by. So the fact that even by 2000 standards, this movie stood out for its misogyny, I think tells you something about (laughs) how truly terrible it is. But to me, it also just raises questions about the like uh, regressive, like anti-feminism of the 2000s specifically. That's of course still very much with us, but felt like part of mass culture in the 2000s in a way that it's not necessarily as much today. Or am I being too generous in a reading of how things have, may have changed? Oh, things were. Things were ugly back then. <laughs> I I want to know everything about the precipitating cultural factors. Like, is it just Bush era, the resurgence of kind of Bush era family values, conservatism? Or, the, or is there other stuff going on in the mix? It was pretty heavily like Anne Helen Peterson of uh, celebrity gossip academic style. And she used to write the Scandals of Classic Hollywood series for the Hairpin. And now she has several books published and whatnot. But she would keep using the term post-feminist and the post-feminist era. And I feel like the Paris Hilton era, as I think of it as, was very much that. That there was a strong backlash towards feminist efforts in the 90s. And there was also a wave of up-and-coming young Paris Hilton patriarchy princess types who were quite happy to play into that because they were rewarded for being the token acceptable 
woman at that time. Does that make sense? Yes. I feel like we should turn this into a true crime podcast where the crime is just the (laughs) 2000s. Like, how did how did they happen? This is what you know, it's so good to read these like feel good oral histories with directors and producers and actors and beloved you know, properties that came out long ago. But I'd like to read a very honest oral history of a real train wreck, like The Ugly Truth. We need the the uncredited secret writer of The Ugly Truth to come forward, <laughs> confirm our conspiracy theory, and reveal the true story of how this got made. <laughs> I feel like I need therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, how many marshmallows? (laughs) How many marshmallows out of five are we going to give this movie? I spit marshmallows on this movie. I I put a whole bag of marshmallows in my mouth and then spit them all over the desiccated corpse of this movie. (laughs) Just soggy saliva marshmallows yeah i was gonna say this movie was like you have the urge to just eat a marshmallow that comes over you i don't know whenever that happens and you reach down in the bag but it's just that plasticky feeling with only a little bit of the dust left and no marshmallows and also there's a hole in the bottom of the bag But now that Samantha said the part about masticating marshmallows and then vomiting them back upon this movie, I think that I have to switch my review to that as well. Sadie, number of marshmallows. (laughs) (laughs) I would give it one little charred, peeled marshmallow skin that's been thrown in the ashes (laughs) out of five. I feel, I like how this is maybe the first podcast we've recorded in which we can't even like bother or try to pretend like we really care about this character like getting with the other guy. Like fuck all of these people. <laughs> <laughs> fuck this whole movie. I don't care what happens to any of them. I wanted that hot air balloon to explode at the end of the movie. Yes. And I would have even felt bad for that old man who was piloting it because it needed to happen. (laughs) It's a sacrifice. He would have been happy to do it. He would have been like that part in the, the action movie where he's like, no, you go on ahead. I'll like, I'll stop him. Except he recognizes that he has to die. It's for the good of us all. Too. Yeah, this movie was like crimes against humanity level bad. I see why both of you who watched it before refused to watch it without us psychologically holding each other's hands. Like this, it was so bad. I I could have never finished it without you. (laughs) Samantha, like, put us on the plank with a sword at our backs and made us watch this movie. (laughs) No, it was you, Sadie, who wrote it in 2009. Oh, yeah, 12-year-old Sadie. The tangled webs we weave. (laughs) Your mom and dad were like, what are you doing alone in your room all these long hours, Sadie? And you you were like, I'm writing a rom-com so that one day when I host a podcast, 
I can make them watch it while making my co-hosts think that it was my other co-host who made them watch it and not me. (laughs) And on a much more cheerful note, you can listen to any of our other episodes on Spotify and Anchor. We are hopefully soon to be on Apple Podcasts. And now you should see the other guy is on Twitter at Y-S-S-T-O-G. Give us a follow. Drop off your comments. You can spam us with all of your thoughts that you have while you were watching any of these movies. We would be delighted to hear them. Or you could email us at Y-S-S-T-O-G-Podcast at gmail.com. And give us your suggestions for future movies or jokes or conspiracy theories about the writers of The Ugly Truth or whatever thoughts you have. Reach out. Alright, deal. I'm gonna make this guy your bitch.